0: Good morning and special welcome to any visitors here today. My name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at St. Peter's. Great to see you. Great to see familiar faces. Great to see new faces. Again, as Alistair mentioned, if you've got questions about the church or the sermon today or the Book of Kings, which we've been preaching through for seven weeks as of today, feel free to chat to us afterwards or send an email. Now, with today's sermon, our royal summer days are coming to a close. Uh, next week we're going to be resuming the sermons in Mark's Gospel in the New Testament but we will be returning to the books of Kings during the Advent season as we prepare for Christmas. The story before us is a sad one. In fact, I think it's one of the saddest stories in the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, It's a story that screams for redemption, but it's also a story that points to redemption. In simple terms, you might say that these are the big themes of today's text, 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're going to explore these themes by asking and answering three questions. First, what happened? Second, why it happened? And third, what God's showing us about Himself in the midst of all this ugliness? No slides today. I've been on vacation with my wife last week, so no slides today, which means you need to keep your trigger finger on the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 21, that's page 261 for those of you who have a pew Bible what happened? There's treachery in the vineyard, right? It's not hard to see this, but there is more than first meets the eye. Naboth is a model Israelite. How do we know? Because he refuses to sell his land to the king, right? Now, that's, it may seem like he's just being a bit stubborn here, right? Aren't good subjects supposed to give up things for their king? All right, that's exactly what Camilla Parker Bowles' husband did when Prince Charles asked if he could marry her, he said, I'm glad to give you up for my prince and king. Right? But that's not how things work in Israel. Right? Naboth's refusal to sell his land is, in fact, an act of faithfulness to God. Look at verse 3. The Hebrew there literally means selling his land would, be a, would profane God. It would profane God. That's what the Hebrew there means, right? Naboth's name, the name Naboth, is very close to the Hebrew word for prophet. And, in fact, I think that's exactly what Naboth is doing right now. He's being prophetic, right? His faithfulness is prophetic. His refusal to sell his land points to his commitment to doing doing life God's way, to building a better world and a better society God's way. He's being faithful. He's being prophetic. You see, when it comes to land ownership in ancient Israel and Israel in the Old Testament, right, God God issues a very countercultural protocol. If you go back to the book of Joshua... The territory of Israel, the land itself, is divided among the twelve tribes that make up the nation, right? And within each tribe, the land was then parceled out to all the major families. That was supposed to be their ongoing perpetual inheritance. In other words, families are not allowed to sell off their land for quick cash. And strong men are not allowed to come along and take that land, right? That's one of the very practical ways that Israel is going to be a new and better type of country in the world, right? In Israel, there's going to be no large-scale land consolidation, right? The king cannot become an agricultural magnate. There's there's not going to be any landed gentry, right? In economic terms or Marxist terms, it means the means of production is not going to be in the hands of just a few people. That's not how it's going to be in Israel. But that's precisely what Ahab is attempting to do in this chapter. Look at verse 2. This is what Ahab literally says to Naboth, right? Give me your vineyard so that I can have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. Consolidation, right? And I'll give you a better vineyard for it somewhere else, right? Or I'll give you a lot of money. The devil's in the details. The clue is the word garden in this passage, right? That's a term that's used only one other time in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10, and it's used to contrast Israel with Egypt. If I said to you, politically speaking, Canada is setting sail like a regular Titanic, you'd know that what I was saying is ominous, right? So to hear the word garden is evocative. What does it evoke? Egypt, the land of Egypt, right? And this term reveals something about Ahab's inner deep desires. He wants to make Israel more into a place like Egypt, just like a lot of the kings before him, right? Egypt. What's Egypt? That's the place where kings play God. That's that's the place where they dispense with people like pawns on a chessboard, right? Egypt is a place where there's no law except the king's law. That's what Egypt represents, right? It's worth noting that from this point on in the story, Ahab goes on nearly to break all of the Ten Commandments. No law. In contrast, Naboth is a man who keeps God's commandments, right? He loves the Lord. And so he won't give his land to the king, right? And so Ahab returns home sullen and vexed. Verse 4. Naboth says no. But when sullen Ahab gets home, there's someone who's very glad to cheer him up in a really sinister way. We've met her before. Remember last week? Her name's Jezebel. She's the queen. She's a nasty piece of work. And she's the boss in the palace. Look at verse 7. Jezebel comes into her husband. And he says, do you not now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you that vineyard that you want. That's what she says, right? She's got a vision for what her husband should be as a king, right? And it's a typical vision for an ancient Near Eastern king, someone who seizes, someone who kills, someone who plots and lies and crushes to have his way. That's what his wife wants him to be. That's the kind of king she wants him to be, right? She's counseling him to join the ranks of every other despot in human history, from Nero to Kupla Khan to Edward Longshanks to Chairman Mao, to Kim Jong-un. And Jezebel leads by example. Let's see what happens. Look at verses 8 through 10. Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent them to the elders of Naboth's city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the end of the table, at the head of the table, and then put two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed the king and God and then take him out and stone him to death. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 13. And two worthless men came and they sat opposite to him, and they brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth has cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Devastatingly simple plan, shockingly sinister. How so? Because Jezebel uses the just law to perpetrate an injustice. Her actions, says one commentator, epitomize classical legalism, right? Using the law to create the pretense of justice. In Deuteronomy 19, we read about some laws about this stuff, and it says that legal guilt in Israel requires the testimony of at least two witnesses. Jezebel knows enough about God's law to abuse it. What actually spawns is fabricated accusations, a kangaroo trial, and then the judicial murder of Naboth. And when the dust settled, his blood soaks the ground, the blood of an upright and faithful man. Let me add something here briefly, right? Every legal system and really every system that people create can become the ugly tool of politicians if the values of those who are using the system have been sufficiently corrupted. And when that happens, good people suffer. People, lives are ruined. People die, right? Human history is filled with people like Naboth. So what the world needs, what redemption involves, isn't just better systems, but better people. And any vision of redemption worth its salt had better take that into account. We don't just need better systems. We need better people. That's what happened. Now we need to reflect on why. Why did it happen? Kings doesn't just tell us what happened. It also tells us why it happened. In all of this, I think there are basically two factors that demand our attention. Number one, Ahab's spinelessness, and number two, Jezebel's godlessness. Ahab's spinelessness, Jezebel's godlessness. These are just variations of a theme that runs right through first and second kings. Let's start with Ahab. Over the course of first Kings chapter 17 through 22, he is repeatedly depicted as a spineless man. right? At certain moments he seems to entertain the right principles. He seems to look at God, but he doesn't ever really follow through with it. Right? And his chronic passivity becomes a cause by way of omission, for a lot of evil things that happen under his administration, right? So for example, earlier in chapter 17 and 18, right, a bunch of God's prophets are slaughtered by Jezebel. Now, Ahab doesn't order that, he doesn't sign that order, he does, you know, it's not his plan, but he stands by why she does it, spineless. Sometimes the only thing that evil needs to do its work is for decent people to do nothing. Ahab might have at least been a decent guy had he done something, but he didn't do anything. He's spineless, right? Look at verses 4 through 7. Ahab went to his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth had said to him, for Naboth said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And then Ahab laid on his bed, and he turned away his face, and he wouldn't eat anything. But his wife Jezebel came to him and said, why are you so vexed and not eating? Right? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, and he wouldn't give me what I wanted. Wang. That's what he said, right? And Jezebel said, do you not now govern Israel? Right? Even she knows her husband's spineless. In this instance, Jezebel is basically telling Naboth that she can act so that he can have his way. Ahab knows what this is going to entail. He wasn't born yesterday, right? He probably knows it's not right. He knows enough about God's law. But what does he do? He just buries his face in his pillow and looks the other way. Go do the dirty work, baby. That's what he says. He's spineless, right? And his passivity ruins his character. That's what 1 Kings wants us to see. His passivity ruins his character. The the way that Ahab is presented in these chapters links him with a whole series of vices that are otherwise seen individually in prior Old Testament figures, This is what you see on a careful reading. So like David, for example, if you know anything about the story of David, Ahab seizes something that is dear to his neighbor, right? And then he arranges the death of his neighbor. That's kind of like what David did, go read the book of Samuel, right? Like Cain in the book of Genesis, we see Ahab attacking his brother. In Israel. Like Adam, earlier in Genesis, we see Ahab taking forbidden fruit, the fruit of someone else's vineyard. This indictment is subtle but unrelenting, right? Ahab has been passive about pursuing the ways of the Lord and so his whole administration, his whole name becomes warped and ugly and evil, right? But it didn't have to be that way. God makes a lot of interventions in these stories, right? We read about one last week, it was extraordinary. Doesn't seem to have really affected Ahab, right? Sometimes Ahab speaks the language of someone who's looking back to God, but there's not really much follow-through, right? He seems to go back to his old habits. Why? Because of passivity. Passivity leads him to be a pushover, someone who's spineless. He's crippled with sloth. That's how the ancient Christians would have put it, sloth. Friends, if you're not swimming upstream, you're floating downstream. That's the message here. That's the problem of Ahab, right? That's why he's a spineless twit. And it's not an innocent and harmless problem, right? It's a problem that results in the one who, in the death of someone who was innocent and harmless. His name is Naboth. All of this we see is, is, is in rocket science, right? All of this we see, Ahab's a man under influence, but not the influence of God. He's under the influence of his wife, Jezebel, right? And that leads us to the second problem: Jezebel and her godlessness. Jezebel's a foreign wife, and from the start, she makes no effort to get to know the Lord or his ways, right? She sets up shop for her pagan deity, Baal, right in the middle of Israel. And Ahab is passive in the face of all that. He welcomes it with open arms. Polytheism, right? Never mind that Baalism wrecks people's lives. Never mind that Baalism results in a mafia-style racket that exploits the poor, because that's what it did. Baalism is the entry point for understanding Jezebel's godlessness, right? Here's how I like to put it. Jezebel is someone who says that she's under the authority, that she's under authority, but she's not really under authority, right? She says that Baal is her master, but he's not really her master, right? In truth, Baal is just a delusion that functions as a convenient excuse for Jezebel to do whatever she wants, whenever she wants, right? Chapter 21 makes it clear that she's not under any law, right? Baal doesn't make any real claim on her. He's fabricated. And so in practice, Jezebel is a law unto herself. She is the law, the law in her own mind. She's the sheriff in that town. Baal is just used to bring some religious legitimization to everything that she wants to do, right? He, doesn't, he never interferes with her calculating, right? That's the definition of godlessness according to the Bible, right? It's why the law of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament is so important. The law is a tangible reminder that we don't make God up. He's real and he can make a claim upon us, right? He doesn't just look at our lives and say yes to everything we want to do. Sometimes he says no, right? Because he's real. He's not just in our mind. Baal never does that. Baal's just a statue who sits there smiling but saying nothing and always giving you a thumbs up. That's what he does with Jezebel, right? Now, the text makes all this clear in a quiet but nonetheless detectable way. Look at verses 9 9 and 10, right? This is what Jezebel says, very important. Proclaim a fast. Set Naboth at the head of the people. Set two worthless men opposite him. Let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him to death, right? Now, what's being ordered here in one sense is pretty self-evident, but we need to notice something more syntactically with regard to the actual structure of this language. These words are what's called a command-compliance structure. I'm sure you've never heard that phrase, and I'll tell you what it means. Don't worry. Command-compliance structure. If you were reading this in Hebrew, your jaw would drop to the floor right now. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, that's how God speaks. God's the one who uses the command-compliance way of speaking, right? That's how he talks to his prophets, like Elijah. That's how Jezebel's speaking. Do you see? She's playing God. That's how she thinks of herself. That's how she does life. It's godlessness, which is just to say unchecked autonomy by someone who's got a lot of power. Godlessness. Just like Grima Wormwood should never have been led into Rohan. There's your Lord of the Rings reference. Jezebel should never have been led into Israel. I'm sure it seems sensible in geopolitical terms for alliances and things, for Ahab to marry her, right? But the truth is, is that her arrival in Israel is as ominous and ruinous as the democratic election of the Nazi party in 1930. There were signs that should have been heeded, right? Ahab should have seen it. He had a copy of Deuteronomy on his bedside table, right? But it got buried beneath all of Jezebel's Bail Today magazines, right? (laughs) The short end. This is this, the short. Is this right? Ahab and Jezebel are a perfect match made in hell, right? And out of this match comes hell on earth. The faithful are mowed down, the treacherous are elevated, and the lowly are stamped on while the rich are satiated. That's the depiction of First Kings seventeen and right up here to chapter twenty-one. Right? Do you hear screams and cries for redemption? They're all over this story, but that's not all there is. Chapter 21 is also a story that points to redemption, right? It shows us not only that God desires redemption, but it shows us something about the shape of the redemption that God is going to work to bring, right? And this is our third question. What does this text reveal to us about God? What's God what does he want us to know about him from this text, right? By this point in Kings, everything in Israel is in a bad way, right? There are a few, a few upright people like Naboth around, but by and large, it's a rotten situation, right? The palace is crooked. There are a lot of crooked people in the kingdom to them, and we learned that from verse 8. Jezebel wrote this letter to the elders about this conspiracy, and they all participated, right? Everyone's compromised. Ahab's not the only spineless person around. There's a lot of people like that in Israel this time. The world is not as it should be. Israel is not as God wants it to be, right? It's a long way from it, in fact. But God is not blind to this, and so he calls out his old tenacious servant, Elijah, to intervene once again, right? Turn your eyes to verses 19, 20, and 21. This is what God says, Arise, arise, Elijah, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel who is in Samaria, and behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, Have you killed and taken possession? And then you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you sold yourself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And behold, disaster is coming upon you, and you will be burned up and cut off from the house of Ahab, will be every male, or free in Israel. Now by this point in chapter 21, we're all livid with Ahab, right? We're dialing Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch right now. So is God. Look at verse 25, Ahab is called incomparably evil in the sight of the Lord, worse than all prior kings, right? Which is why what happens next is going to make you say, shut the front door. (laughs) Look at verse 27, when Ahab heard the words of Elijah, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth over his flesh, and he fasted, and he lay in sackcloth, and he went about dejectedly. And look how God responds, verse 29. He says to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster on him in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon the house. Even Ahab, depraved wretch that he is, can receive mercy from God. I bet the writers of Kings wanted to leave this part out. It's embarrassing, right? That's not the way the world should work. Well, welcome to the strange new world of the Bible. The writers of Kings are committed to telling the truth about God. There are plenty of people out there who wouldn't want to show Ahab any mercy, but God is not one of them. Here's what it comes down to. The redemptive work of God is infused with mercy. It's infused with mercy, right? Mercy that can be embarrassing, mercy that can sometimes seem scandalous. That's God's M.O., Generous mercy, profuse mercy, a yearning to pardon people of their offenses, right? It's an offer that God is always making throughout the scriptures, right? It's at the very center of his redemptive work. When we read 1 Kings, all these stories we've been reading, the big question that we ask of God has got to change. See, the big question that most late modern people like us ask about God is, why does a good God allow all this evil to exist in the world? We ask that question a lot. Right? There's tons of blogs about it, and I can't tell you how many PhD theses have been done on it. Way too many. right? But King says there's a better question to ask. The real question is this. Why is God so staggeringly merciful? Because that's, that's exactly how God is. He is indescribably merciful, right? What's the takeaway from this? Two things I want to give you. One for us as individuals and one for us as a community, right? Mercy, it's the staggering mercy of God. As individuals, the profound mercy of God means that your need for God's mercy is never too late and never too much. That's a lie if you think that it's a lie, right? Ahab's story dispels that lie, right? This means that nothing you have done, nothing you can do, will exempt you from the Lord's ultimate cosmic mercy. God says this over and over again in Scripture, right? He knows it needs to be drilled into our hearts. I know there are people in the room this morning who need to know this. For whatever reason, based on your circumstances, you are mercy-starved right now. Right? You're denying yourself mercy. That's called self-loathing. You're incapable of believing that God our Father can actually pour his mercy over you. That's called a delusion. We all have thoughts like this at times. We all feel wretched. We all want to beat ourselves. There are awful things in our lives. We've done awful things, yet God's mercy is greater. That's what these verses are telling us and it's repeated throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, some of you are wondering, let me ask the question that might be in some of those minds of yours, is the indescribable mercy of God an excuse to indulge things that are evil and bring harm? No, it's not. It's not, right? To be confident and to rest in God's mercy is never a basis to be unjust or hedonistic or violent. That's the abuse of a beautiful thing. Don't do that. We don't operate that way, right? God's mercy is never an excuse for sin. But it is a remedy for the shame that so many of us carry. Shame. Many of us live in that invisible prison. I spend at least half of my life in it. That leads us to exclude ourselves from God's mercy. And that's, that's another way of abusing a beautiful thing. So don't do that, right? When God looks at the mess of our lives, he will never, never, never say, I'm shocked, that's too much. Can't forgive that. Can't show mercy there. God will never say that. Didn't say it to Ahab, won't say it to us. What about mercy for the church, the mercy of God in the church, right? How does God's staggering mercy apply to us as a community, right? It goes like this. As a community, I think we're to reflect the profound and sometimes embarrassing mercy of God. We should be known for this. That should be our reputation in this city. Concretely, this means that we are to be people who who want to become able to be delighted to show mercy, right? And to fight to do it even when it's unpopular and hard. To fight to show mercy even when it's unpopular and hard. We're to be a community that's committed to welcoming people that sometimes seem unwelcomable. That's God's mercy through us, right? As long as Jesus is Lord, we can never be a community that writes people off or that says that one's totaled. Beyond redemption, right? We've got to be a community that's ready to extend the mercy of the Lord to the worst of the worst, should they come into our midst. Who are those people to you? Right? Have a word with yourself. Think about this, right? If we're not on this wavelength, then perhaps we don't know the Lord as well as we think we do. That's the outworking of divine mercy. We've got to be a community that revels in that, right, and lives out of it and therefore celebrates repentance with patience and hope. It's always a live option. The church is never its truer self than when we embody this. Let me make this a bit more concrete. God gave me this, God gave me this memory, this story for you all last night. I got it this morning. I wrote, I wrote it down because my, my long-term memory is okay, but my short term's not. In another life, in a land far, far away, I knew a couple called Dick and Jane. And yes, I have changed their names. They're not actually Dick and Jane. On the outside, Dick and Jane seemed to have a solid and happy life. They had good jobs and good friends. They have three beautiful children. But appearances can be deceiving. After about 25 years of marriage, Dick wanted out. He wanted to experience things that he felt like he was missing out on by being married. And so he left, and he threw himself, and I am not understating this, into headlong hedonism. And his business faltered and went under, and he moved far away, and just like the prodigal son, he tasted every dark pleasure that the world has to offer. There were many lovers, and along the way, his resources were utterly depleted, and his family was devastated. And, and at the end, after about ten years, Dick was left in a crumpled heap without home, Without friends, without lovers, without savings, and with AIDS. And somehow he crawled back to his home place, and Jane heard about it. Her fortunes had been better. She'd remarried, she'd restabilized, she'd grown vibrant in her walk with the Lord. And in all of that, she came to know a lot about the mercy of God. And she became a conduit of that mercy for her ex-husband. She reached out to him. She found that he was back in town. She made arrangements for its accommodation. She did that against the vice of certain friends who were not only embarrassed but also pissed off that she would do that, including his own family. But Jane wasn't deterred because Jane knows the Lord. And from that time on and right into the present, Jane continues to visit and to care for Dick every week. She handles his medicine. She watches over his diet. She gives him money to live on. Warmly. She does that warmly. I think Jane's a picture of the church at its truest. She doesn't withhold the mercy of God because she knows God has never withheld it from her. We all know people or types of people, pedophiles maybe, that we, sh- we think don't deserve mercy. If you don't know anybody like that, just wait until the next time you get screwed. and you will. The Christ of call is to to radical mercy. It may be embarrassing, but you know what? It moves our hearts. That's exactly the way God intended it. Jesus wants us to be a community of mercy, right? And mercy often means fresh beginnings and new stories and better endings. And maybe that'll be Dick's case, kind of like Jean Valjean. The mercy of God, breathtaking. But that's one side of the coin. The redemptive work of God is also bound up with justice. Look again at verses 17 through 24, right? God's commitment to justice is exhibited here. There is a God from whom no secrets are hidden. Despite Jezebel's stealthiness, God sees Naboth's blood crying out for justice. And while God chooses not to annihilate the house of Ahab at that moment, right, what he says in verse 29 tells us that God is not sidestepping justice. He's rather delaying it. 1 Kings is showing us that God sees and takes account of the blood of all of the world's victims of injustice. God does see that, right? And that applies to injustice in all of the different forms, right? Murder, martyrdom, but also professional injustice, economic injustice, social injustice, relational injustice, all the different forms of injustice, right? God is not oblivious to this. He's not indifferent. He sees and he will avenge, right? So God relishes mercy, but he also cherishes justice. That's the message here, right? Now, for anyone who's ever suffered injustice, that's good news, right? It's all too easy to conclude that the masses of people throughout human history who have been crushed by injustice are destined to be forever forgotten, right? We can hardly keep track of the injustices in our own day and age, much less of all those throughout history. There aren't always war crime tribunals. There aren't always monuments. There aren't always public vindications or memorials. And quite frankly, in the vast majority of cases, there's not even a memory. In this sense, Naboth is the exception. He gets remembered, right? Most victims of injustice are forgotten and nameless and faceless. There are people in this room who may be part of that group. There are others who will be. In fact, at some level, we all will be because nobody's going to get through this life without suffering from injustice. But, but, and here's the painful catch, nobody gets through this life either without perpetrating injustice on other people, none of us. You see, 1 Kings is not just a report of this thing that happened, it's what I like to call a representative story. It's a story that plays out over and over and over again in the world, right? And we're all in that story, and we all take different turns playing different parts, right? Sometimes we play Naboth. We're victims of injustice. We're people who suffer because of the selfishness of others and the godlessness of others and the cowardice of others. But sometimes we play Ahab and Jezebel, right? We're perpetrators of injustice. We inflict harm on others. Sixty percent of us, after all, right now, are lying at least every, once every ten minutes. Read that this morning in a study. We all perpetrate injustice, lies, deceit. Sometimes we get to be like Elijah. We get to call it out, right? We may not always play these roles in a personal sense. This is another thing to realize, right? Sometimes we play the roles of the victim and the perpetrator just by being in this world and participating in its systems, right? Sometimes simply by taking part in the systems of the world, economic systems, whatever else, we're we're complicit in injustice. Sometimes by being subject to the systems of the world, we become victims of injustice. We know this. Our world, just like the world of Naboth, is screaming for redemption, right? It's in a terrible state of affairs. We're always getting beat up and beating each other up. We're wounded and we inflict wounds, and so we need God's mercy. We need God's mercy. Yet if we're in need of mercy, it means that justice is probably knocking on our door too. We need to be served some justice. Now here's the light in this darkness. God looks into this whole situation, our situation, with profound pity and compassion. And he moves to bring redemption and to set things right, one life at a time, but for all lives. And this redemption necessarily involves perfect mercy and perfect justice, right? And that's because that's what's needed. But how can God do that? Ultimately, how can God show perfect mercy and perfect justice, right? It seems like he's going to have to choose one or the other. This is the great riddle of the Old Testament, how can God be both of those, right? It's a riddle that starts back in Exodus 34. What, what's there? Moses on top of a mountain encountering the presence of the living God. And the goodness of the Lord passes before Moses. And this is how it's put into words, if you can even do it. But this is how it's done, right? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love to thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression for sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's the same thing we hear in 1 Kings 21, right? God is astoundingly merciful, but also passionate about justice, right? But how? Are these things not incompatible? Isn't this like AC to DC or fire to water, right? I mean, God is basically saying, I'm infinitely merciful. I want to pardon everyone, yet I will never let sin go unpunished. Never. That's weird, right? It seems like a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction, it's a tension. And it's attention tension that's part of God's redemptive goodness. You see, God is too good to let justice fall by the wayside. That's why he's got to punish sin. But God is also too good to let people be lost, which is why he shows astounding mercy. But again, how can God have it all, right? We, if you're going to be merciful and just, you, don't you think we, God has to be sort of kind of merciful and kind of just? He can't be perfectly merciful and perfectly just at the same time. If the Bible were to end with this story we'd still be left asking that question. But this isn't where it ends. Naboth himself points to the coming ultimate unfolding of God's redemption, that moment in history when when justice was no longer delayed. You see, there was another man like Naboth. Even more than Naboth, though, he was a righteous man, right? He always lived and walked according to the ways of God. Yet, despite being a man of faith and obedience and love, enemies came into his life who conspired against him. Like Naboth, this man also had a garden that he liked to hang out in. It was a place he cherished. He used to go there and converse and laugh with his friends. In fact, he was praying in that garden one night when some accusers showed up. And he was taken away. Why? Because he wasn't going along with their vision for what Israel should look like. And there was a trial. And like Naboth's trial, it was a kangaroo court. And everything happened in a quick and shady manner. And in a matter of hours, just like Naboth, he was taken outside the city wall and he was murdered. Except he wasn't murdered in a pit covered with stones, he was hung on a cross on a hill for everyone to see and deride and mock. That's Jesus Christ. He's the answer to that riddle. He's God's redemption. He is the living expression of how God can be both indescribably merciful, and perfectly just, right? On the cross, what happened to Jesus? Justice and mercy kissed. He was snuffed out. He was cut off. That is the payment. That is the demand of justice. The New Testament says that Jesus wasn't just a regular person. He was God with us. That's how God can be perfectly just. God himself took the wages of justice so that none of us have to ultimately, not even people like Ahab. But the cross also speaks a word of mercy, right? Justice has been satisfied on that cross, which means that justice can no longer make a claim on any of us. There's no double jeopardy in the kingdom of God. The only verdict for those who trust in Jesus Christ is a verdict of innocent. Because justice has already been served. That means for you and for me, it's mercy. We are pipe people who are invited to live in that tension of God's goodness, God's goodness of perfect justice and perfect mercy, that tension is a place called grace. And that grace wears the face of Jesus Christ. Have you looked at his face? Have you looked at his face lately? It's a face that will change your life. It's changing mine right now. It's changing many of your lives right now. I know it. This is the true story of the world. And I'm sorry if this is the first time you're ever hearing it but I hope and pray that you will hear it again and again and again and again until you know that it's your true story. It's your true story.